This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. I'm an economist by training. I, I trained in applied microeconomics. I do work in theory and uh, political economy and a little bit of work in Catholic social thought, all of which is to say I don't do this for a living. <laughs> what I do uh, on Edith Stein is, is a very sort of vigorous hobby and something that has been a, a a passion and interest of mine for a long, long time. So I hope that you'll um, appreciate what I'm here to, to bring you, um, just out of the just shared love that I have for, for this uh, fascinating person. So what I'm hoping to do, I'm going to introduce you very quickly to her life and kind of what she's about and what she's interested in. And then I'm going to, um, you know, maybe what I very much want to do is remove myself as much as possible and just try to put you in contact with her and her thoughts. And so I'm going to try as much as possible to recede only, you know, as much as, as needed so that you kind of can have an experience of what it would be like to, to read and study her closely, which is why I'll present you with lots of um, wonderful quotations from her, her work. And, and that will start to make some sense as I get, get started. So I probably should get started. Um, so the first thing I want to say before I um, enter into the the, the exact subject of tonight's lecture, which is about the gestalt of the soul. And don't worry, I'm going to explain what this word is, um, <laughs> what, what it has to do with. But I want to talk a little bit about Edith Stein and her connection to the Dominican order, right? Because the Thomistic Institute is run um, out of the, 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 the Dominican House of Studies in Washington. And, um, you know, Edith Stein, uh, after she became a, a Catholic, um, she was a Carmelite. So you might think, well, you know, is it a little bit strange to... Um, to be thinking about Edith Stein. But actually, I want to say to you that she has some very interesting connections to the Dominican order, which you may not have, have thought about. Um, so we think of Edith Stein um, as especially converted by the um, autobiography of Teresa of Avila. If you haven't read it, it should be at the top of your list. It's something that, you know, really should sort of, it's the, it's the one book perhaps I come back to most often in my life the autobiography of, of Teresa of Avila, that she was converted by this at the end. She had a long intellectual conversion, Edith Stein, um, and then uh, kind of what finally put her over the edge was uh, staying up all night and reading the autobiography of Teresa of Avila. Um, so, okay, Teresa of Avila is a Carmelite. This is one of the reasons that she felt very drawn to the Carmelite order. Um, so, okay, what are her connections to the Dominican order, you might wonder. Um, the first is that she's a philosopher, and so we think of, of course, uh, the, the, the history of philosophy in the Dominican order. Um, many people study philosophy, right? Maybe some of you here have studied philosophy or are currently studying philosophy. I don't know. Um, but very few people are so philosophical <laughs> um, in spirit. They're so devoted to the intellectual life that they are pained, like they feel pain at distraction from the life of the mind. Um, but Edith Stein was one of these sorts of people. Um, I don't know if you know anyone like this. Uh, I live with one, <laughs> so my husband is a philosopher, and he's the sort of person. So when I, when I, you know, Edith Stein, if you read some of her her own autobiography, she wrote a, a, a delightful work on her own life in a Jewish family. Um, she talks a lot about this, and you know, if you know someone like this, you will relate to the the kinds of things that she says about herself. Now, after her conversion, she converted in. 1921 to 1922, so, you know, kind of in that interwar period of time, she began to read voraciously in the Catholic tradition, not only from the mystics where she started, like St. Teresa of Avila, but she also read John of the Cross, of course, um, 
So she didn't just read the mystics, but then she really, because you know, as a philosopher, as somebody who is extremely analytical, she just dove into sort of the, the philosophical space and she worked right into Aquinas very quickly, right? So, so from the, her very early days as a, as a Catholic, she began to read from the Dominican um, tradition. So in that sense, you know, as a philosopher and as a student of St. Thomas, uh, later in her philosophical journey, we can kind of claim her as at least a sister to the Dominican tradition, at least I like to say. But there is another reason to attach Edith, or at least, again, like, associate her with the Dominican tradition, and that is um, that she, um, she taught at a Dominican secondary school for girls um, in the town of Speyer for a period of 12 years. So this is a really long time. Somebody that died in her early 50s, right? Uh, so 12 years is not an insignificant part of your life if you die when you're 50. And this was a school run by Dominican sisters. And at this time, she already harbored great hopes of becoming a Carmelite at some point in time. But it's not the sort of thing that just you kind of wake up and do, given what was going on in Germany at that time for a Jewish convert. Uh, so she looked for a place um, to, to spend her her time and her talents. And so understand that at this point, um, she was, well, I'll get to this in a minute, she was denied a university chair, so she, so she spent this time uh, teaching in this Dominican school for girls. So this 12-year period of time, I would like to say it's the span of three college educations that she spends living with the Dominican sisters there. Um, and I like to think that this is the time in which, if you read her letters, things that she's writing to people, her correspondence, when she was at this school, um, she really becomes habitually a Catholic. So she's been intellectually converted before she goes to live with the sisters, but she becomes sort of habitually Catholic. Um, so I think it's difficult to give like a complete account of, of Edith Stein's intellectual life without taking into account a little bit of this um, association that she has with the Dominicans. Now, um, the time that she spent in Speyer is uh, important for this talk because it was the time that she spent teaching young women and it's actually on account of the many years she spent trying to teach young women that she really developed a lot of the thoughts that I'm going to present to you tonight that have to do with her thinking about, about uh, what it means to be a woman. And then, of course, she thought, well, if, you, if you're thinking about what it means to be, to, sorry, when you think about what it means to educate a girl or educate a young woman, you know, she's very philosophical, so she thinks, well, you know, girls are supposed to grow into something. And how can you educate them well if you don't think about what they're supposed to grow into? So she kind of, this is her method. So she says, well, we have to figure out what a woman is. And we should think about what an ideal woman is. And then we could start to think, we could maybe start to think about what girls' education should look like. And her thoughts on girls' education are kind of almost completely undiscovered. And they're just wonderful and marvelous. And, and you'll see, I actually... Yeah, so this particular line that is in front of you right now is taken from, so you'll see how many times uh, I've tried to put the text up here that I'm drawing from, how many times I'll be drawing from something on the nature of woman. She has essays on the nature of woman, and then sometimes I'm going to be drawing from things on women's education, and they're not going to sound like schooling-related things at all. <laughs> so uh, Stein has, Edith Stein has the same problem that economists sometimes have. If you ask an economist or a philosopher to say something practical, they're still saying something theoretical. And she's really uh, to a T. This is what she's like. Um, now, just a very brief, uh, just to, if, if you don't know anything about Edith Stein, just to bookend her life for you. Um, she was born in 1891 in the city of Breslau in Germany. And for those of you that are students of Catholic Social Thought, 1891 is the same year that Pope Leo wrote Rerum Novarum. 
So she's born into um, into Europe in this time, and she was born as a, a into an observant, devout Jewish family. She was the youngest of eleven children, so kind of worked that one out. Uh, and she, uh, this is my husband did this too. This is I don't know these philosophical types. She had renounced the faith of her childhood by the time she was eleven, uh, or a young teenager. So uh, yeah, she just. Didn't, it didn't make sense. Um, my husband remembers the time when he was a little older, maybe 15 or 16, and looked at his mother in the kitchen. I mean, he's gotten over this now. He looked at his mother in the kitchen and thought, yep, she really is just a bundle of sense data, isn't she? Uh, so, I mean, you can't put these philosophers in too uh, tidy of a box. Uh, interesting characters. But she, like my husband, just, you know, as a young teenager, kind of thought, this none of this makes any sense. Um, and this was a great sorrow for her mother, um, who was really quite devastated. She was sort of thought to be the favorite, you know, she's the baby, she was thought to be the favorite of her mom. Um, she was a brilliant student, as you might imagine, so she studied philosophy first in Breslau, and then she moved on to, to better universities, to, to Göttingen. And then she became, as you might know, the distinguished and famous student of Edmund Husserl, who's one of the founders of contemporary modern um, phenomenology. And then she took a break to serve in the Red Cross in World War I. So she was a kind of nurse in, in World War I, um, as many others did, many other students did. Um, then she, when she returned, she wrote a thesis on empathy. This was her main, her primary subject. And then earned her doctoral degree in 1916. So uh, that was you know, very impressive at the time. Very few women did this at the time. Um, then she began working as Husserl's assistant um, and you know, when you, again, when you read her correspondent, you realize that being an assistant was not a glorious job. It meant, you know, pecking, picking through his, his handwritten scribble notes. Uh, probably it was the kind of work that wasn't really um, fitted for someone who was herself a brilliant philosopher and should have been doing her own work. Uh, there are some really interesting comments that she makes about that. Um, and then she followed Husserl to Freiburg, where she lectured occasionally, but then at that moment, um, this is in the late... Uh, 19 teens was denied uh, the opportunity to hold a university chair because she was a woman. And even her mentor, um, Edmund Husserl, said, well, if the job of being a university professor is meant to be open to women, she should certainly have it. But even he, who knew how brilliant she was, would not um, argue for her to hold a university chair. So it's kind of tragic. She went on to complete what in Germany is called a habilitation. It's a second doctorate. Um, which is like, it's, it wasn't enough to write your first doctorate, you wrote your second one. So she did that in 1918. And again, Husserl heaped the highest praise on this uh, second dissertation. Um, it has sometimes been remarked that she was barred at first from holding a university position because she was a woman. And then later in 1933, she was prevented from holding a teaching position because she was a Jew. So a very tragic relationship that she had with university, even though it was the thing that she loved to do most in life. So what I'm going to do now is, that's sort of a brief introduction, is give you this kind of impressionistic account of this one particular area of her thought, which uh, is really interesting. And I think it's, it's fascinated me since I was a teenager. Um, so I want to begin here. So this is sort of your starting point. And this is a bit of a teaser. I have this, um, that is the ideal image of the gestalt of the feminine soul. So I want to kind of take you through this a little bit by bit until we get to what that is, and then we'll sort of unpack that. So this is meant to be a teaser. So we can't figure out what she means by sort of femininity without understanding what this gestalt is. Now, I'm not an authoritative expert on German, nor on how to take German terms, and <laughs> but uh, here's, what, here's what I can do for you. 
Um, in English, the term gestalt is usually rendered as uh, shape or form. All right, so shape or form. So it's also a term we think philosophically about kind of an organized whole that is greater than the sum of its parts. So if you spend any time studying philosophy, either in college or in high school, or maybe even just as a hobby, you think about the kind of form in the platonic sense. So we think about um, the form is sort of what gives a thing its, its itness, right? So like we might have a specific table in front of us, but we kind of understand that there's this kind of maybe this ideal form of the table, this very platonic idea. Um, and uh, okay, so that's good enough. So we have like the ideal table in our minds, or we have a universal idea of a table to which we think any particular table I meet, maybe it's like that table. Which, how we know when we see a flat surface with four legs, it's probably a table. <laughs> so this is the idea of form. But the thing with Gestalt is a little bit more interesting, and we're not done yet. So the trouble is, um, now take all of that, it's a little bit complicated, and then think about form in relation to something that's actually changing or growing, right? So, um, you know, like a plant or something like that. So this becomes a little bit more complicated. Uh, so if you thought about a table and its essence, like table nest or something like that, it's already difficult. Uh, but what about when something is growing? At what point is the ideal kind of the ideal thing, right? Um, you think about like a seed, um, doesn't look at all like a mature plant, right? So when you think, well, what, what would you have in your mind if you said, well, what's like the ideal of an oak tree? You're like, well, there's an ideal for each stage of development, right? Or something. And maybe there isn't really ever an ideal because it's always changing. You know, so what could you say about that? Is there some kind of, is there a moment of maturation for the plant, which is kind of its ideal? So this is the difficulty. The idea is that there's a form, a philosophical form. For the plant, um, we have this problem of constant growth. Now let's make it worse. <laughs> now let's think about a human being, right? And a human being has the same problematic. We have the soul, we have a form. This is according to Edith Stein. We have a form, and this form informs the growth and the development of the person. So now take all the complications of thinking about what it even means to have sort of a universal idea of a table in your mind, and then to think, well, how complicated would it be to have a universal ideal of the ideal oak tree? That's already worse. <laughs> but now you have to add to it not just kind of animal life form, that there's animal uh, self-directedness, but now, of course, we have agency and choice. So now once you introduce that, you think, well, okay, uh, to what extent do you know that you have an ideal that you're aiming at? Do you think about it on a regular basis? Um, to what degree can you perceive your progress towards that ideal? But these are notions that are, uh, you, you can't read Edith Stein on femininity or masculinity or indeed on any matter related to the person without kind of digging into this because this is what she thinks is happening. She thinks that we are you know, deeply, deeply spiritual beings. Um, she shares with, certainly with the scholastics, although some of her working out of the, um, let's just say the body-soul dualism doesn't look very Aristotelian. It doesn't look very domestic, and the, you know, if you have a, a, a close student of St. Thomas, they'll be squirming about at this point. And uh, we all know the problem is there, but it's it's there. So the the thing to do is to kind of just sort of sit back and go, okay, this is what she thinks is going on. But but what she shares with Aristotle and St. Thomas is this uh, 
Commitment to the idea that matter doesn't give rise to anything. Matter doesn't cause anything. The spiritual, the spiritual, the actualization of spiritual powers, this is where all the action is. So if you're going to think about what people are, you've got to get clear about the, the causal impact of the spiritual being. So this is for her very, very important. And, and if you do this wrong, by the way, if you read Edishtein wrong, and I just mean by reading her wrong, you'd be selective. You could, you could, you could build something that sounds extremely new age, <laughs> and it isn't very new age. If you read her in, in total, you know, you won't find, you, you can't make it work. Uh, but this is very interesting. So uh, just to, now I'm going to move into some, some direct quotes. Um, I can forget I have it in front of me. So just to give you a sense, uh, now I've described it, but I want to give you her language. This is where I was saying that when I, if I do this right, at some point you will barely notice that I'm standing here and I'll just sort of recede from your, your vision and you'll just sort of think that she's here talking. Um, so she says this, for instance, just as an inner form resides in the seed of plants, an invisible force making a fir tree shoot up here and a birch there, that we find, too, an inner mold set in human beings, which urges evolution in a certain direction. So, you know, I'm going to just show you lots of this kind of language to give you a sense. So you, when you leave here, you go, okay, okay, I kind of get it. This is what she's getting at. And you can chew on it and think, you know, to what extent does she have this right? Where does she have it wrong? It's very interesting. Um, so I'm just going to give you some examples of this. Here's another one. So one of the things I mentioned was... Um, Oh, this, this works. This is great. One of the things I mentioned was uh, this, this complexity. So in this, this first quote here about the plants, you see already this idea of growth and change. So how do you think about ideals urging its evolution into a certain direction? In other words, like the, the birch tree will never turn into an oak tree. Right? That's not what happens. Um, this is a kind of uh, really... But then you have this, this new piece, which is that if you're, uh, if you're a a sentient being, if you're aware, you have self-perception, and you understand that you are a being that's changing and growing, then you would also have to understand, how do I perceive this process? So this is a lovely uh, quote that I, I, like to, uh, I like to quote a lot. Um, if we're trying to attain insight into the recesses of our being, we see that we are not a completed being. We're, we're a being in the state of becoming. So, you know, you would say to yourself, well, how could that even be possible? I mean, you would you're, you're a being. Like, there's not any contingency about your being, except in so far as God, you're, you're, you're contingent uh, on God's holding you in existence. But you know, it's not like you're a half human being. You're, you're not. But, but this is this, this is this idea that she has that sort of the meaning of, of life is to have a process of maturation. So when do you become fully mature? When have you achieved sort of I don't know, like to borrow a more modern term, like peak potential or something like that, or peak performance, if you will. Um, our being does not remain enclosed within its own confines, extends itself, fulfills itself, and our becoming and our acting in time is ordered from eternity and has a meaning for eternity, and that she wants to say it's kind of difficult to achieve clarity relative to that process. So you look at yourself, you, get, you kind of understand, you know, like I'm not there yet. I mean, thank goodness that in the spiritual life we're not, we're not done yet, right? So in that sense, it's very easy for us to see what she's getting at. Uh, even though, again, for someone very steeped in Aristotelian or Thomistic tradition, this is going to make you feel a little uncomfortable. <laughs> um, I think it's just so interesting. So uh, here's, an, here's one last uh, version of this, uh, this idea. We will always find fundamentally the compulsion to become what the soul should be. Okay, what the soul should be. What does that even mean? How do we think about our souls changing over time? To allow the latent humanity set precisely in its individual stamp to ripen 
So you're like a fruit that's supposed to grow and ripen. You know, your soul has a has an enlarging capacity. Now, if you have read deeply in the mystics, from the mystics, and those people who write a lot about the progress of development in prayer, you will not find this super strange. <laughs> in fact, you will find this totally normal. But most of us don't do that, and uh, we are sort of accustomed to thinking about, okay, well, there's, you know, we have matter and spirit, and these things, your spirit is in some sense unchanging, right? So I want to just point out these tensions that are there, and they're not easily resolvable, but it would be difficult to say that this thought that she has, that there's this latent capacity in us for spiritual enlargement, it would be difficult to say that that is not also formed by her reading of the mystics, the saints who, who write about what the, 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 the Let's just say the progress of prayer, the science of prayer. There's a, there's a science to these things, uh, which is amazing because most of us don't even think of it. Like we go through most of our life unaware we have a soul and wake up at some point like, well, what am I supposed to do with my soul? <laughs> well, maybe I'm supposed to water it, you know. Oh, maybe I'm supposed to water it like the plant. This is totally, this is totally out of Teresa of Avila. Right? So she's a really interesting character, someone who, for whom a particularly in, interesting kind of philosophical development um, merged with her exposure to these mystic saints, and then she kind of produces this stuff, which, as I said, has all kinds of tensions with the tradition. I don't think it contradicts the tradition strictly. I think it can appear to in some places, but it's, it doesn't strictly. Okay, so this is where I want to get it. So this is the gestalt, actually, the um, what the soul should be, the idea, the proposition that your soul has a thing it's supposed to become which is uh, quite interesting. So I'm going to get you to what that is, but I have a couple of little tiny details, or, or a little detour. Um, the first thing I need to tell you is that Edith Stein, again, if she's a philosopher, she's extremely analytic, so everything has like a place. <laughs> so for her, uh, she has a taxonomy when she writes about people, about persons, and gender. And essentially, it's a threefold schema. I didn't draw it out for you only on the slides. I just have direct quotes. But for her, each of us, each of us as human beings, participates in three different kinds of identities. We participate in a universal identity as human beings. And in that, we share a destination. Our destination is God. Uh, the second is this, well, I'll just use the term, she would use it similarly, the gender identity. So you belong to either male or female. And for her, Male or female is really essential. So, so if, you, if we were to do feminist thought for a minute, she'd be a gender essentialist. I think the gender essentialists are fading. There are not too many of them. But it used to be that you were sort of a gender universalist or a gender essentialist if you're a feminist. She would have belonged very much to the gender essentialist, the people who think, think that the characteristics of your gender are essential to your being, not accidental. Right? They can't just be changed. Um, so for her, male and female are almost so distinct as to be separate species. Now that doesn't make any sense in a biological sense, but in a philosophical sense, she wants to class them as really, really different, right? Uh, yeah, some people who uh, maybe are married are, are looking at me like, yeah, if you live with someone of the opposite sex, you know they're a different species. Um, who knows? Uh, <laughs> who knows? So she, but she uses this term, species. And then finally, so I said three different things. She's put, she puts a lot of emphasis on the individuality of each person. So the first thing you share with all people, which is universal humanity, the second thing you share with just all the members of the same gender, there's some things we can say about all women and some things we can say about all men. And then finally, she 
she's very interested in this thing called individuality, which for her is just the, your uniqueness, like how you're different from all the other men and all the other women in your class, and how you're different from all the other people in that class. Um, so this is an example. She says it's not possible to generalize about individuality as one might generalize about either either of the first two categories. Can't generalize uh, about individuality because that's it. It's just uniqueness. It's who you are. Um, she finds a lot of room in this individual uh, space, this third part of humanity, uh, for all the kinds of individual predispositions and gifts. Um, and I have to tell you that she she goes right ahead. She goes for it. And she says, now, it's totally possible that women who are feminine, deeply feminine in their soul and body, because for her, soul always starts first, may have some accidental characteristics that make them similar to other men. Um, so men could have feminine characteristics and women could have male. So she goes ahead and says this. Now, she doesn't develop it very much, but I think that's why she, she wants this third category. She's got all kinds of interesting things to say about it. But I, just as a point of curiosity, one of the reasons she says that is because she clearly feels very deeply that she has a lot of masculine traits. It's very interesting. So she troubled over this. She, most, of the, most, of the, um, most of her intellectual companions were men. She felt that she fit into the male you know, professional space better. Um, I think this is fascinating about her. So I want to just mention that. Um, and then a couple of other thoughts about, um, about her, um, her view of gender in general, maybe two, two short things. Um, the first is that although she admits that gender identity, whether it's masculine or feminine, is complicated or complex, she also wants to insist that it is not wholly impossible to figure it out. So... And she's going to tell you right up front, here are, the reason, here are the kinds of information that we can use to determine what it would mean to be an ideal woman or an ideal man, or to think about, to, to speculate about ideal manhood or ideal womanhood. So I've listed here for you, this is one of her quotes where she says, look, the words of the Old and the New Testament speak to this, um, the nature of man and woman, history elucidates it for us, so history, um, and the needs of our time. And the diversely fibered texture is sort of the point. It's not going to be so clear to see what really is the essence of womanhood or the essence of manhood, but uh, we, it's not totally obscured for us. Um, so she basically says, we can do this. We can, we can get this done. We can go ahead and try to answer the question to what men and women are called. Like, it's not going to be so confusing for us. Now, can you say, why is she saying this? Well, because there are people saying when she's writing... Yeah, this is this is probably written in the late 1920s. There are people saying at that time that we can't know. We can't really know what men and women are supposed to be like. You think this is something we invented this this year or last year or the last decade? Not really. Like this is a hundred years old. Um, and if you wanted an example, I'm going to give I, I'm going to give one to you. Okay, so not very long before she's writing, but I mean at least uh, let's see. This is. This is almost 50 years before Edith Stein is writing. John Stuart Mill, who I love to pick on. <laughs> I'm an economist, so you know I gotta I have the right to pick on John Stuart Mill. Uh, this is the kind of gender skepticism, uh, but you find this, and there were many, many other people in her contemporaries who who would say this. Standing, I just love Mill is just. Um, Wonderful rhetorician. <laughs> you just imagine, he'd be very persuasive. Standing on the ground of common sense and the constitution of the human mind, this is a very strong claim. 
I deny that anyone knows or can know the nature of the two sexes, he says. So where Mill is a skeptic, Edith is going to say, no, actually, we've got sacred scripture. We have tradition. We do have common sense. We have our bodies are supposed to be a signal. I mean, she's sort of like, here's all the pieces of evidence. And then this is her point. It's diversely textured. It's not going to be like crystal clear for us. Because why? Because she wants to preserve that many of us may not conform entirely to what culture expects of our gender. And she's okay with that. But she wants to insist that there are some things we can know. So she's not going to be a skeptic. And she, she, she's, of course, she knows she's up against many of her peers who are skeptics in this. Um, so, so here's her answer. She says, well, we can begin to do this. So this is an example um, of when she, she answers this kind of skepticism. So I'll just kind of let you go ahead. I'm not going to read it line for line. But she starts with this kind of like only the person blinded by controversy. I mean, this is a very, this is not somebody who's a shrinking flower. <laughs> it sort of like comes right out swinging. You'd have to be kind of caught up with weird controversies or total ideology to deny that a woman is formed for a particular purpose. So she's not going to beat around the bush. <laughs> um, she wants to argue, and I'm going to go through this in more detail in a minute, that woman is destined to be wife and mother. This has a very specific meaning for her, so we shouldn't react in initially to this. She, of course, doesn't get married. Um, so she'll say both physically and spiritually she's endowed for this purpose. And then she says it follows from this Thomistic principle of, of the soul forms the matter, that such a spiritual characteristic does exist. So she is going to insist that the, this is this gender essentialism, that women and men are essentially different in a way that's very profound. Whether or not this can be made consistent with St. Thomas is kind of an open question. <laughs> so I, I know people who are, who are working on it, and I certainly know people of sound mind who will take both, the op both opposite positions on that question. Um, so you see this, but this I, I just want to emphasize this point that ma matter is dead on its own. What gives anything life or form or shape or gestalt is the soul or the spirit animal. And uh, so for her, this is totally determinative. Like that settles the question, right? Um, in other words, that we have different bodies, that our bodies are made with different capacities, must indicate that something spiritually about us is profoundly different. That's how she reasons here. Okay. Um, what I want to do now is, let's see... Um, Oh, here's another wonderful quote about this, the, the, the priority of the spirit. If humans rank above the lower creatures because of spirit, they imitate God, their generative power too must be rooted in the spirit. It's a really powerful statement. Okay. Um, so now I'm going to resolve, I'm going to resolve that first statement. That is the ideal image of the gestalt of the feminine soul. What is the that? So the that comes after this statement. So this is her description. Her longish description. I first read this when I was, I don't know, 16. And I just thought it was the greatest thing I'd ever read. Um, the soul of woman must be expansive and open. It must be quiet so that no small weak flames are extinguished. Warm so as not to benumb fragile buds. Clear so that no vermin will settle in dark corners. That's right out of Teresa of Avila, guys. Um, 
very, Teresa of Avila has a whole, you know, description of the soul, and, you know, one of the problems when you're not holy is that there's vermin of all kinds inhabiting dark corners of your soul. Um, Self-contained so that no invasions from without can peril the inner lift. Again, this is really read out of the mystics. Um, empty of itself in order that extraneous life may have room in it. Now she's getting to this part that's she wants to unpack about the, the mothering characteristic of the perfected womanhood, that what women are, are, are made to do is to welcome and nurture other life. It's what we're oriented to do, whether we do that physically or we just do that through our, our normal human relationships. Like we're, we're always yearning to do that. Like, who are you? Let me get to know you. Let me make you better. <laughs> That's just like, like a reflexive response. Okay. Um, and then finally, mistress of itself and also of its body, so that the entire person is readily at the disposal to recall. So for her, this last line is something like availability. So what, what, like a good woman is available all the time. Like, you know, your baby needs you at three in the morning, four in the morning, at all of those hours, two, three, and four in the morning. You are ready. You are available. Um, but then that should apply to those in need, anybody else who needs you. Um, so that is, and then she proceeds after she wrote that, she says, I know that is an ideal image of the gestalt of the feminine soul. In other words, this is what the soul should be for a woman. This is what you should be. Now, we're all kind of in the process of becoming, right? So she has that whole, this whole idea that we're not all achieving this level of perfection, but this is what you should be. And then you see this very beautiful exposition of the role of Our Lady for her. Uh, the gestalt of the feminine soul, the soul of the first woman, Eve, was formed for this purpose. And so too was the soul of the mother of God, and in all other women since the fall, there has an embryo of such development. So again, that's that idea of growth. You know, you, you've got this capacity to be this amazing person that welcomes, that nurtures, that loves, that forms intimate bonds with people, but you may or may not be getting it. <laughs> you may just be an embryo. Maybe you're just a a slightly more advanced embryo, maybe you're an infant, but you're on the process someplace. Uh, and of course, one of the first things that you think when you start reading her is you're like, where am I on this process? <laughs> am, I, am I not even born yet? You know, what kind of a woman am I? Um, but it needs particular cultivation, so it's not to be suffocated among the weeds, rankly shooting up around it. So this is this poem, it needs cultivation. Now enter into you know, this is from um, Principles of a Women's Education. Enter, well, now she's going to tell you, how do we cultivate this? So I'm not going to work through that all, but that's all what's in that essay. Um, okay, so what I want to do next is, uh, keeping my eye on the time here, I'm not going to kill you off. Uh, I'm actually going to just try to recede a little bit more and just take you very briefly through these um, six points. So I have lots of quotes, and I can just move more quickly or less quickly. So uh, hopefully what you have in mind now is this kind of like very, maybe probably for most of you, kind of new idea, set of ideas about what it would mean to think about our souls as having a kind of ideal capacity. I haven't told you what she thinks uh, the gestalt of the masculine is, but I threw it up there, and I, I see that we have lots of, lots of uh, masculine people in the room. Um, and so I'm sort of saving that for the end. Some, in some cases, my audience is all feminine for this talk, and so I'm delighted that we're... So I can get you to that. She does have a thought about what the gestalt of the masculine soul is. Although she doesn't write very much about it because it's not her interest. Um, but 
she's very Catholic author in the sense that she's um, she's interested in telling you what the ideal is instead of just telling you what she disagrees with. Which, if you if you've worked in in intellectual work at all, uh, this is a much harder thing, right? So you know this idea of it takes a model to beat a model. <laughs> you know, if you don't like somebody else's idea, what's your better thought, right? Um, so she's very creative in that sense. She's very interested in telling us what she thinks is going on. Um, and uh, so it's all worth reading. But again, she didn't write very much about, uh, she didn't have a lot of thoughts about boys' education. She didn't spend any time doing it. Um, I have six sons, so <laughs> maybe I'll write that book. <laughs> um, <clears throat> although I should wait till I'm done and see if it works. Okay, um, so very quickly, uh, what I'm going to do now is, is just almost in a manner of a just uh, just an introduction. I'm just going to give you some of the key points. Uh, you weren't awake if you didn't already discover that um, the original vocation of man of, of a woman, uh, according to Edelstein, what, what the soul is getting towards, what it's the inner form that is urging its evolution in a certain direction for her is spousal union and motherhood for a woman. That's it. And she's not going to apologize, but she's going to tell you what she means by that. Um, so uh, I'm going to go back um, to this. And I took half of this quote for you earlier, this idea that we always find uh, fundamentally the compulsion to become what the soul should be. Okay, skip to the, the, you keep going in this particular quote. The deepest feminine yearning is to achieve a loving union, which in its development validates this maturation, it validates its own maturation in union, and simultaneously stimulates and furthers the desire for perfection in others. So for her union and motherhood, which is motherhood is oriented to what? Not to necessarily having babies, although she thinks that's great. It's oriented to uh, growing new human beings, which she thinks is like this fabulously mysterious process. And it must be so, I have another quote for you, it must be so, so fabulously mysterious and amazing that it must change the whole nature of what it means to be a woman. So for her, the union with another person, so entering into some very intimate relationship of union, spousal union, and then out of that, that union flowing, this kind of like really cool thing where you kind of figure out what people need, you welcome them, you're available, you're warm, you don't reject them, you don't sum them up, you don't offend them. These are all features for her of what the feminine soul is up to. And so uh, just to kind of give you more evidence to this effect, here's another one, completely different essay. The deepest longing of a woman's heart is to give herself lovingly, to belong to another and possess another completely. The longing is revealed in her outlook, her personal and all-embracingness, which appears to us as specifically feminine. Another one, woman's nature is determined by her original vocation as spouse and mother. One depends on the other. The body of a woman is fashioned to be one flesh with another and to nurse new human life in itself. A well-disciplined body is an accommodating instrument for the mind which it animates. At the same time, it's a source of power and a habitat for the mind. This is a great, great thing. I mean, you could just spend a whole weekend chewing on that, that your body is a habitat for your mind. If your body is falling apart or it's not disciplined, what, what does she even mean by well-disciplined body? Uh, this is, um, we could say, and it would, like we'd probably chuckle a little bit. It's a very German thing to say. <laughs> Somebody's going to chuckle. But uh, the well-disciplined um, body is a habitat for the mind. It's at the same time a source of power. 
So woman's soul is designed to be subordinate to man in obedience and support. She spends a lot of time on that, uh, and you can, can refer you to those sections. It's also fashioned to be a shelter in which other souls may unfold. This is a tremendously interesting image. Like the woman's soul is like a kind of tent or something, like a shelter where people can go who are fragile, who are injured, who are seeking help, assistance, like protection from the elements. It's supposed to be like a, a tent that's amazing. I, it's, it's, you don't find language like this anywhere. Um, and then she's a spiritual companionship and spiritual motherliness, not limited to the physical spouse and the mother relationships, but all people with whom a woman comes into contact. So she's supposed to be like this, not just with respect to her actual spouse, uh, or you know, she enters the convent like she did. Of course, you know, the bride, she's the bride of Christ, but just sort of she's supposed to be essentially entering into some sort of, I mean, what's a spousal union if you're not married to somebody? Well, what does that even mean? What would it be like to really deeply know the other person? And to deeply know that other person in the sense of enjoying them. Okay, enjoying them. So in the contemplative life, the idea is that we enter into a relationship with God with the purpose of enjoying each other. Like God enjoys me and I enjoy God. We don't even have to say anything to each other, right? Now this sounds kind of strange. Nobody talks this way anymore. But the purpose of um, the purpose of relation between persons, like persons have a special kind of dignity, is that we're actually created to enjoy each other. That's what the contemplative life means. So her idea is that, well, in every walk of life where women encounter other people, the first thought is to know them enough to enjoy them, that people are meant to be enjoyed. Now, this sounds a little weird in our concept, like there's not another word in the English language, right? But it's kind of the way like the mom looks at the kid that only, you know, the face that only a mother could love, but that somehow women are supposed to be able to conjure that up for everybody, right? Like my, my two younger sisters in the last year have just had their first babies, um, and my last baby is almost five, so just to give you a sense of the time. So th there are these group text messages with, you know, cute baby pictures all the time, and I'm swooning over the baby that I don't have anymore. So this morning, I, I sent a picture of my four-year-old into the group chat, you know, and I said, this is all I got. It's <laughs> like grinning, slightly awkward-looking for, you know, four-and-a-half-year-old. But that sense that, you know, kind of, like, you don't have to perform for me. You don't have to do anything. Like, I just enjoy being with you. That's that's what she thinks is kind of the essence of this kind of spousal union taken outside of a, an actual spousal relationship. Uh, and then that's the basis for what? Because you enjoy the other person. You are looking to further their development. You're like, oh, you know, you're four. Oh, you peed in your pants. Like, okay, <laughs> sorry. You know, but like with the four-year-old, that's what you're working on. You're like, well, all right, you're going to change the underpants. But, you know, so it's like just that thing writ large, which is, um, it requires like holding two thoughts in your head at the same time. Like you are perfect as you are, and I just enjoy you so much. But of course you could be better, which doesn't make any sense, right? You could stop peeing in your pants, but if you never stop peeing in your pants, I totally enjoy you, right? And I know this sounds funny, but that is kind of, that is like the whole thing. So that's what she thinks is going on all the time. All right, so next point. And these get a little bit quicker as I go because they get, I'm going from the more central to the to the outer rings of the, the tree or something like that. All right, so she thinks that for the for the gestalt of the fe feminine soul, the ideal womanhood, that there's a special unity um, between the spirit, anima, the soul, and the body. Now, what does that even mean? And this, again, this is going to get weird for the Aristotelians in the crowd, and how many of them I have. You should just out yourselves. 
so I know who I'm offending <laughs> just all at once. She says this, she says, uh, let me give you the slide. I would like to believe, she says, this is kind of in her, she, she's clearly speculating. She's like, I would like to believe that the relationship between the soul and the body is not completely similar in man and woman. With woman, the soul's union with the body is more intimately emphasized. That woman's soul is present and lives more intensely in all parts of the body. Oh, it's, it's so weird. What does that even mean? That, we're, that women are sort of more, more like at home in themselves or something like that. I don't know. It's hard to put any kind of normal English on this. Woman's soul is present and lives more intensely in all parts of the body and is inwardly affected by that which happens to the body. Whereas with men, the body has pronouncedly the character of an instrument which serves them in their work and which is accompanied by a certain detachment. So men are sort of able to detach themselves from what happens to their bodies in ways that she thinks women cannot. I think that explains a tremendous amount of the fallout of, let's just say, the sexual revolution, the you know, the culture of casual sex, I think a lot of, a lot, it, this can explain a lot of that. It has some sort of predictive power for this. Really interesting, right? Now, if you have, you know, a lot of sons, if you raise a lot of boys, it makes total sense to me that men, boys can see their bodies as tools and instruments. I mean, they're just throwing their bodies at stuff constantly. <laughs> you use so many examples. And, you know, it's just like the woman is like, oh, like, you've got to be kidding me. You know, it's like, that's not a thing you should do ever. But um, this is so interesting. Then she says, so she, to back up this point, she's this other nice quote. She says, the task, uh, so why would women be like this? I haven't really talked about why men are like this. I'll get that sixth point if I, I'm keeping my eye on the clock. Don't worry, guys. Uh, the task of assimilating in oneself a living being, which is evolving and growing, of containing it and nourishing it, it's a mysterious process. It's... Uh, it represents such an intimate unity of the physical and the spiritual that one is well able to understand that this unity of the physical and the spiritual, which happens essentially like as a woman is growing a baby, <laughs> that that imposes itself in the whole nature of woman. Like what kind of person do you have to be? Where Your spirit cannot be like over there and your body is over here, right? Which she thinks is a thing a guy could do really easily. If you're a woman, you're, you're you know, like you, you should be like, at home in yourself because, you know, maybe you have to welcome new human life. So she thinks that that kind of unity imposes itself in the whole being of a woman. You think about all the kinds of things, like how many times do men have conferences on the problem of like work and family balance? They never do it. The women are always like, the men should too. They have problems with this. <laughs> and the women are always like, we need to have a conference about the troubles between balancing work and family. And this is what she thinks is going on, that the reason women are concerned all the time about the apparent tension in areas of their lives is because they really want things to be very unified. They don't want to feel that there's some sort of tension between their career and their home because they want to be unified. So this is, this is her explanation for these things. Another one, um, a quality unique to woman is her singular uh, sensitivity to moral values and an abhorrence for all which is low and mean, uh, allied closely to this sensitivity for moral values is her yearning for the divine. So she does think that women have special spiritual gifts, and this is quite interesting, which brings me to the third point, so the characteristics of the feminine, her spiritual powers. Uh, okay, so what does she think about this? Uh, she says very, very uh, promptly, a woman can achieve her perfect development only by activating her spiritual powers. I get it, this sounds kind of new age. Uh, what she really just means is, if you don't pray, forget about it. That's what she means. If you don't pray, you will not become this perfected woman. You won't be moving in the right direction. 
you're going to just be like the opposite. Um, uh, you never leave the embryo stage. Um, the strength of woman lies in her emotional life. Uh, this is an interesting idea because we often tend to think, whatever we say publicly, I do believe we still tend to think of emotions as a weakness. Um, so this is the strength of women. Why? Because it's the emotions that allows us, I mean, she spent her entire doctorate on empathy. Uh, certain aspects of the emotional life that allow us to accept the other in whatever stage of development they're at, that this is kind of, it's necessary. Um, let's see, uh, women naturally seeks to embrace that which is living, personal, and whole. Um, so again, this kind of orientation to guard, to cherish, to guard, to protect, to nourish, and to advance growth. So that's kind of a much nicer way of saying what I was saying about my four-year-old, you know, that you just you go, okay, where are you? I cherish you. You're going to be growing. I'm going to help you get there. We got this covered, right? But it's, that's the, that's the idea. This is a lovely one because it just, it's again, kind of predictive of certain things. Um, woman has the faculty to interest herself empathetically in areas of knowledge, like personal knowledge, far from her own concerns, right? So she has whole passages about how this capacity of woman to understand and to be interested in, like, I don't even know you, but I could, we could have a conversation, I become very deeply interested in your life. I want to ask you all kinds of questions about you. You know, like before we're done, I'm going to know exactly like, you know, what, who, who you're fighting with in your life and who you love the most right now. And this is like, a woman could get this like in 10 minutes, right? This is so cool. <laughs> but she's also like, you know, but by the way, like that could lead to a lot of problems. You could be really interested in gossip. You know, you could be reading like all the social media all the time because it's just like, it feeds a need. You want to know about people. Um, but that's her, this is where you can sort of see, although I'm not presenting it to you, when she says, well, how would you cultivate this? She said, well, we have to educate young women to, to understand the strength, but we also have to like help them see where it could be their own downfall, right? So it's, it's, a, like it's, a, it's a strength, but it needs to be curved, uh, directed in certain ways. Um, so interesting. Uh, this is a longer quote I'm not going to read to you, uh, but that true feminine qualities are required wherever feeling, intuition, empathy, and adaptability come into play. Adaptability is such an interesting one which I don't have a lot of time for, but if someone wants to bring it up in question and answer, um, certainly today, uh, I don't want to get too much into it, but if we think about some of the, um, <clears throat> some of the contemporary problems of gender dysphoria um, and some of these things being socially contagious, young women are much more susceptible to this kind of adaptability to certain trends and fads. So it's certainly true about clothing, certainly true about all kinds of other sort of so social adaptability is something that's part of being available. Like I can adapt myself to many different kinds of persons in order to serve them, to live with them, to nurture them. But where the social tendencies are, are poisonous, that adaptability becomes actually really a, um, a problem, right? Um, a holy priest I talked to one time said to me something, which I think is what Yiddishstein has in mind, uh, that... Um, if a man is asked to do something he can't do, frequently we'll just say, I can't do that. If a woman is asked to do something she can't do, she will figure out a way to destroy herself to get it done. Um, and that's kind of funny in its own way, but it can be very, very tragic because uh, women, women that does have that capacity, it's a kind of self-abnegation, which ordered properly and in the proper context, and when women are cared for in the way that they should be cared for and respected. So a lot of you know Edith Stein's thought is going to place a lot of burden on men as well. 
Mm. But that adaptability is, it, you know, it's, it's such an interesting thing. Like, so that I can adapt myself. Like, suppose I have a, a child with many, many disabilities. I can become the kind of person that can rise to that. We see that so many times. Um, it's part of her strength, but it's also, you know, something that can, can, can really um, lead to a lot of tragedy. Um, okay, so uh, where are we now? Which, which of my slides? Equality. Yes. Okay. So, so this is this is a quote I already gave you once, um, and I'll put it here again. Um, something that John Paul. Ten minutes. Yeah, that's fine. We're uh, coming down the pike here. Uh, something that John Paul II talks a lot about is because of women's like attention or um, sensitivity to um, suffering in others. Um, she's particularly sensitive to sort of moral suffering. Um, so this is, uh, I think, something that seems to make sense to us, but she was, she's aware of this. Um, and, you know, this, I'm going to just go ahead, I sometimes skip over this slide, but I'm going to go ahead and put it up here anyway. Um, so the thing that should go without saying, but I'm going to say it because I think it does not go without saying these days. Um, she doesn't think you can really educate young women, and certainly she would say the same thing about young men as well, without religious education, because... If the strength of a woman lies in her spiritual life, if you need to be connected to a life of grace in order to, to get this embryo to grow in the direction it's supposed to grow in, how are you going to do that without being very deeply religiously oriented in your education? So, of course, that uh, that's a, a puzzle for us who live in a culture where um, religious education is not taken for granted. Okay, let's see, we are on to um, women in motherhood and work and vocation. And I'm going to just, um, in the interest of getting you to, I think I'll skip over five and save that for question and answer, and I'll get you to the gestalt of the masculine because I think we should do it. Um, so what did she think about, um, you know, I mentioned this kind of tension between work and um, vocation. Um, and she's very balanced. I mean, she's, you know, she's, um, I mean, she, of course, she thinks women are going to have these sort of tensions that they're pulled in different directions. Um, she thinks basically if you have small children, you should, you should, I mean, you, you have to be kind of completely oriented to them. Um, so let me skip you to more practical lines. Uh, we should accept as normal, she says, that married women are restricted. Now, she doesn't mean restricted in the sense of legally restricted, but she just means like confined in a certain sense to domestic life at a time when her household duties exact her total This just means when you have young children, we should find it normal. Um, and she says also, any social condition is an unhealthy one which compels married women to seek employment and makes it impossible for them to manage their homes. In other words, if things are so rough that you can't make it on one income and you have to go into the workforce, she's not talking about people who feel that there's a way, like the way that I live my professional work is, is quite easy to, to, to balance, so to speak. She's not talking about people who have like professional callings, but, but like people who are impoverished and feel compelled to go out and support their families, but they would rather not be working. I think that's, she thinks that's unjust. Um, this is a wonderful quote. She anticipated this thing that modern sociologists call the second, the second shift. This is many of the best women are almost overwhelmed by the double burden of families, uh, family duties and professional life. Always on the go, harassed, nervous, and irritable. It's a funny, I'm taking it out of context to read the whole context, but I just want to point out that she anticipates the thing that sociologists now point out, which is that even when women and men are both working and they have shared family duties at home, um, women still do more childcare in the home. Uh, it's it's um, 
they're surprising if you look at the time use, time use surveys. So I think that that is quite interesting that she anticipated that. And so then I promised you I would get you to click a stop to the masculine. So we will, in the last two minutes, we will do this. Uh, yeah, so what does she think is going on with men? <laughs> All right, um, let me see if I can get this to, let me see if I can get through to here. Um, Yes, I'm going to leave you with this. Uh, what is the male gender identity? So she describes the essence of the male identity as the call to be master of the created world. She says that a man's body and soul are equipped to fight the world, to conquer it, to understand it uh, by knowledge, to make it his own, to possess it, enjoy it. You have this enjoyment again. And finally, to make it, the world, in a sense, his own creation through purposeful activity. A lot I could say about this. I just want to leave it with you, essentially. I'm not going to try to unpack it fully. Um, Edith does call this vocation that I just put up here for you. I think I did. Yes, I did. Uh, she does call this kingship or lordship. She's extremely careful to describe the ways in which this kind of vocation uh, is frequently perverted into some kind of tyranny or lording it over others. Um, describes, certainly in, in some detail, that this is a kind of loving service and a care for what is his. Uh, so this is very interesting. And then let's see, I have another one for you. Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, leave, I'm gonna leave this for you as a sort of a final quote. Um, as for fatherhood for Edith, there's a fascinating asymmetry between the genders. The genders are not completely symmetrical. Men become fathers, she believes, through their kingly vocation by taking a wife and making her fruitful, making fruitful what is his, okay? I'm just gonna put it the way she puts it. Um, and she says, this is analogous to his relation in general to creation, that a man uh, finds some part of nature and he, he like you think about like a field, you know, he, this is his plot of land and he beats it down and he makes it fruitful. And that this is a kind of, this is the mode or the type for what male activity looks like, the ideal of male activity. Again, we're so distorted by sin, and you know, bad actors in the world, but it's hard to describe this at all without conjuring up all kinds of you know bad images. But it's you know I think it's possible to free our minds and to think about what what you know like the kingship of Jesus Christ looks like, and that's what she thinks. So Jesus does this. He 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 does a work like with his body as an instrument, and he takes the bride and he makes the bride his own. But that it's that's the that's the model. That's the type of male activity. Um, so more succinctly, that men achieve fatherhood through kingship, which is the primary vocation, kind of kingship. Whereas women, I'm just pointing out the asymmetry, achieve their queenship through spousal union with the king. So their queenship comes about through the union, and the union is primary. So these differences are natural, and they're expressed in culture in the course of history, and they are essential. Um, so that is where I'm going to leave you. Unless you can just chew on this. And um, thank you very much. And if you have any questions, of course, I'm not going anywhere, so I have lots of time. <laughs> yes. Okay. Sure. Yes. Yeah, speak loudly. Okay, in the yellow and blue. <laughs> um, so there was a quote earlier. Mm -hmm. I was hoping, could you explain what you just trying to mean when she said, the, woman, the feminine soul is like an attribute subordinate and obedience to the man. Mm -hmm. Why also she does not mean by that point? Yeah. 
So uh, she, in fact, spends a lot of time in these essays. And so I'll, actually everything I quoted from Shay is in this book. So I definitely encourage you to get it if you're interested in this. I can't do any better than just sort of hand you off to her. <laughs> she explains herself beautifully. Um, she spends a lot of time with the original Hebrew term that's used in, uh, in, the, in the accounts in Genesis of women, um, the second account of Genesis, be made as the helpmate. And she says, it's like, well, how do we really get a help, helpmate? And of course, now we're, you know, it's Hebrew. For her, she's reading the Hebrew, and then she's reading it in German. And so she's got ways she translates helpmate um, into German. And then we're reading an English translation from her German. So my guess here is that it's important to get the language right. But she spends a lot of time on this, that um, she does believe that um, this um, obedience and support is, um, is a type, right? It's not, it's, um, it's the mode. And it's the mode or the type because, as the Second Vatican Council said after Einstein, it's impossible to, to understand the mystery of man and therefore the mystery of man and woman without understanding Jesus Christ. So, you know, you don't follow Jesus Christ because you think he's smarter than you are, because you think he's better, like, he, he just is your king, right? Um, and in that sense, it's a type. So, you know, my husband's always wrong. <laughs> always. <laughs> but um, there, is a, there, is a, there is a type that we, we are playing, we are, in fact, as, as members of the um, spousal union, we are, in fact, playing roles. And in that role, I am meant to be, in some sense, his helpmate in accomplishing and making fruitful his part of nature. In fact, I'm part of that, right? So we help each other accomplish our vocations in that sense. Um, she certainly explains and unpacks in there that this is not meant to be, again, it's very difficult for us um, to even think about what these ideal images are like without our intervening amount of sin and the original sin. And because original sin is so problematic for us because it, it attacks most deeply the things that are most important for us. So what's most important for us is to live out our vocation. For both of us as men and women, the, the relation between the spouses gets completely undermined, right? I mean, we know this, like the, in the garden, right? Adam and Eve's relationship is, is ruined in a certain sense by that first sin. And then, of course, the uh, relations with their own children get distorted. And so what she means by it, yeah, is exactly that, that um, the because the orientation of the feminine vocation is to, to see the needs of the others and to help them mature, there is a subordination there. It's not a bad thing. She thought, and remember at the beginning I said, well, she spent all this time as the assistant to Husserl, and she was really doing kind of like mundane work, work that was not, but she was very good at it. And she troubled, She struggled with it. She said, well, you know, like, I feel like I should be doing my own work. But she was also like this, essentially like a glorified secretary to, you know, the great Husserl. And she did it cheerfully and lovingly. She's very good at it. So she thought that women's um, characteristics made us very good at this, at helping men with an objective work of some kind or another. Um, you know, I, I don't think it's worth, or, you know, given how fraught these things, I don't think it's worth unpacking what she means by obedience, um, except insofar as, <laughs> um, I'll do it this way. John Paul II in Chintezimus Annas says, 
let me get you the actual paragraph number. I don't think I have it for you. He says that obedience to the truth about God and man is the first condition for freedom. And it's a really striking thing to say because obedience doesn't sound like freedom. It sounds like the opposite of freedom. But it's not obedience like to the other person like a slave. It's obedience to the truth. And the truth is we're made in the image of God and we are meant to image God in certain ways. One of the ways we image God is by living in communion with other people. And the first communion for a married woman, first communion for a married man, that in the practical sense is the, the spouse that you live with. So obedience to that truth means my husband's the head of the family. That's the truth. And he's the head because he images God in that way. Um, and so living in obedience both like to the spouse is like the, the first condition of that is to sort of recognize the truth of reality. Reality is structured in a certain way. And that kind of obedience sets me free, right? This isn't like a pie in the sky kind of way, right? It's sort of like, but, but I mean, I preface this by saying my husband is always wrong. And I think these are both true at the same time, right? So, uh, and he would say, I'm always right, actually. That's, he would also say that. I mean, you could call him up right now. Um, that's my simple answer for you to sort of think about obedience as part of freedom, which is a really deep thing and it's really hard to figure out, I think, in our culture. But it's what we believe because we're we're not um, we're not God. So uh, because we're not gods uh, or God, um, obedience is a kind of has two features. One feature is that um, we, because I don't create reality, there's a bunch of things I can't do. I can't fly. I can't eat all the brownies I want and not gain a lot of weight. So there's like I can't change those things. That's a kind of obedience, but it's not obedience like. I'm so happy that I came in on these brownies. Like, it's just sort of like I'm forced into it, right? And I can't fly. I'm forced into that. I can just jump off the stage and probably break my neck. But there's another kind of obedience, which is when you sort of go, oh, aha, like, I see how this works. You know, my child, like, although I'm, I feel like, or I could describe my life of service to my child as a kind of slavery. I could do that. And that wouldn't be very virtuous, right? But I could also observe and discover at some point in time, wow, like, look at the way my child thrives when I've adapted my life to him or her and tried to serve him. And then I realized, wow, this is, okay, you know what? I'm actually, my will is behind this. I'm willing the structure of reality in which I have to do things which are sometimes looking like menial things. But when I will that, it becomes a virtue. And it's what God asks for us and the kind of obedience that we have. So she means all this because this is basically how the church understands freedom. And that's why when we read obedience on the page, we read it in this like horrible contemporary context. Um, so I'm not here to apologize for it. I'm not here to say sweep it under the rug. I'm just here to sort of point you at, I think, a broader metaphysical context for thinking about obedience and freedom, which I think is Pauline. I mean, it's in St. Paul. It's in the, it's in the scriptures. Um, but... You know, it's easy to miss, I think. Yeah. Is that another question? Yeah, well, sure. Uh, and speaking kind of theologically and, and bring up all of the scriptures, so I'm thinking about like the gospel where it says for Christ is that, you know, in heaven you're either married or you're in marriage and you're called to. Yes. Christ is either male or female. Eschatologically, yeah. what happens to the female soul? Is it there in heaven? How do those things? Yeah. Right. No, that's a great question. 
Um, Edith Stein doesn't say. <laughs> so, so okay, next, next question. <laughs> she, she doesn't really say. Uh, oops, I don't really need it anymore anyway. She doesn't say uh, about this. Um, you know, uh, let me think. Like, if I were to speculate, you know, given all of the pages of, of hers that I've read over and over and over, what does she, what does she think? Um, let's see. Well, Jesus Christ is still Jesus Christ in heaven, right? So, uh, um, and Our Lady, her body is in heaven, right? So, I mean, uh, she, so she doesn't say, so I'm just going to work with, like, my intuitions right now, which is to say that um, let's go with this taxonomy, like the threefold aspect of human nature, which she thinks is there, and I think is, is, is consistent with the scriptures. We have a, a, a common final destiny, but it would be absurd to think that because we're all going to land in heaven with God, that like Jesus Christ and the Blessed Mother will like lose their gendered characteristics, right? That's like crazy, like a crazy thought. Okay, well maybe they're special, like right, because Jesus Christ is God and the Blessed Mother is the only sinless human being. But would the rest of us just become genderless? I mean, that pushes like my intuitions very far. How do I reconcile that with Saint Paul? I don't know, <laughs> except to say, to say that um, you know. There are different. We, we, when we speak certain language, there are different senses in which we mean the same thing, right? Or different things. Um, and so, in a sense, you know, God isn't like, well, here's all the girls in heaven, you know, and here's all the boys in heaven, right? I mean, I'm sure there's a sense in which we are just, um, you know, we, we won't have concupiscence in heaven, for instance, right? I mean, those are the kinds of things. Like in that sense, we won't be male and female in heaven. Like, we'll all be, like, naked, and there won't be any, like, awkwardness to that, and there won't be any, like, you're, you belong to something. My husband had a wife before me. His first wife passed. Uh, so, you know, we could be, like, we could have that conversation, like, who's, <laughs> who's, whose husband will he be, right? But, <laughs> but we will not be given a marriage, right? So, I mean, I guess I would take it that we could maybe just suppose that the the aspects of our femininity and our masculinity, which are related to sin, those have to go away. And so, but I don't think our essential, our essential genderness, genderedness will go away because it doesn't make sense to me knowing that Jesus Christ and the Blessed Mother have to retain, right? Like, would you think that Mother Mary's femininity was somehow accidental to, like, there's some, like, neutered soul that she has in there that we just get rid of all the, like, the womb and the whole, like, the whole thing, she's just going to be, like, a gender-neutral Mary, I think that's insane. So, <laughs> so basically, I don't know what Edith Stein would say, but now you know what I would say. All right, all right, now I'm done. Yes, oh, okay, and I'm not going anywhere, so if you don't get, yeah, yeah. Go ahead, I'll take you in the middle, and then I have, I have, I have you. Yeah, go ahead. Edith seemed to really clarify what the salt of the feminine soul is, and how it's Well, they're exclusive if they're opposites. <laughs> All right. So meaning she thinks the woman should be warm. So if a woman is cold, definitely exclusive. Woman shouldn't be cold. <laughs> she definitely shouldn't be nasty. She shouldn't be unfriendly. So anything that's a real opposite to what is listed in the ideal gestalt, I think, would be exclusive. Hmm. Now, it gets a little bit trickier if we think about things that are not in that list, right? And maybe that's what you have in mind. Um, and I think that's where she 
would want to say, well, no, some of these things might not be. So maybe like, well, um, okay, so like what's a, what's a masculine trait that a very feminine woman could have? Well, it's for her, she will say a masculine trait is to um, have a very clear set of objective standards about things, right? She would say that's a very masculine trait. It's, it's a masculine trait to size up the, the, the objective world in a certain sense. By the way, why is one of the reasons that has to be masculine and not feminine for her is because um, once you size up objective standards, people either meet them or they don't meet them, right? Anybody that's a professor or teacher <laughs> knows what the problem is. Once you've said, like, you need to hit a 90 to have an A, somebody's not going to meet that. Um, so for her, that's a very masculine thing. But does she think that some women might find it easier to do that? Um, yes, she clearly does. She thinks certain kind of rational analytical thought is more masculine, but she clearly engaged in it. So in that sense, things which are not, let's say, contra opposites to the things in the list, I think she would not say that they were exclusive, but that in a particular person, they would reside in their individuality. Is that fair? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so she's very specific. She says, like, is there any vocation, like professional calling that a woman should not be? Like, should a woman not be a I don't know what, a construction worker, a football player. I don't know. She basically says no. She thinks any a woman can do any kind of work in, in her way, in a feminine way. So she, I think she, in that sense, she was rather progressive in her day, even though when you read some of this, you go, this is very old-fashioned. But, yeah, she was interesting. <laughs> okay. So I think we'll officially stop, but um, if you have more questions, I'm, I'm not going anywhere. I'm staying here tonight. So. All right, thank you.